Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7, the Gospel of John chapter 7. We'll be beginning our study of this chapter this morning with verses 1 through 13. Please give your attention to God's holy and errant word. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. You may have heard kind of a minor news story this past week about an eight-second video clip of our former president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which is the only known film record that we have of him in a wheelchair. You probably know that FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, was afflicted with polio when he was 39 years old. And by the time he was president, he was, for the most part, paralyzed from the waist down. But in what was really, uh, from today's perspective, an amazing collaboration between his assistants, his staff, and elected officials, and the media, amazingly, this was kept secret from the American public during all the time of his presidency. You can understand why. Here you are the president, the leader of one of the greatest nations in the world, most powerful nations in the world. And think about the time period during which FDR was president. Our country went through the Great Depression during that era, and we went through World War II. So it's very understandable from our human perspective why FDR would not want the public to know about this incredible personal weakness that he had. He was leading at a time of great danger and great insecurity. And so the leader needed, in his mind, to project an aura of strength and control. But I'll ask you this morning to think about the contrast, then, between Franklin Delano Roosevelt and that human concept of what the image of leadership and power looks like and what it looks like to be the leader of the kingdom of God. The contrast between Roosevelt 
and Jesus Christ could not be more stark than it is, especially as it's illustrated here in this passage in John 7. In the kingdom of God, Jesus taught us, the first shall be last, the weakest shall be strong, the greatest shall be least, and that glory comes through shame. And God's king does not look like the kings of this world. The biggest mistakes, I think, that the church has made in its mission to show Jesus to the world, the biggest mistakes we've made in the history of the church have come when we've forgotten these principles. And we've sought to use the world's methods and the world's values in trying to show Jesus to the world instead of looking to his values and his methods. And this is the issue as we look at John chapter 7. You'll remember, if you've been with us, at the end of John chapter 6, a great number of Jesus' disciples, as it says there, turned back and no longer walked with him. He lost a majority, undoubtedly, of his followers as a result of his teaching about the cost of discipleship. His teaching about the wholehearted, whole life commitment involved in being his disciple as we feed upon him daily in a walk of trust and submission. As we've talked about, those people, those masses, the large crowds that gathered around him early in his ministry, they loved much of his teaching and they loved his miracles. After all, who wouldn't love free wine and free fish sandwiches and free health care? But when he started talking about what it meant to truly be a disciple, they turned back and no longer followed him. It says here in the text that after this point, with his dwindling number of disciples, He remained in Galilee. And the reason is given there at the beginning of chapter 7. It says because the Jews were trying to kill him. And we knew this because we saw this all the way back in chapter 5. Where after he had healed the man on the Sabbath, at first it started out as a controversy over the Sabbath, but it ends up with Jesus making claims in the minds of the people, and certainly it was true, to be equal with God. And so the Jewish leadership were ready to put him to death as a false teacher. We're going to find out that the reason that Jesus didn't go to Judea, the reason he didn't go into Jerusalem, wasn't because he feared death, but because it wasn't yet his time. In verse 2, it says something kind of forced the issue, though. It's that the Feast of the Booze was at hand. Not the Feast of Booze, that's somewhere else. It's the Feast of the Booths, which you may better know better, the better, more often used name for it is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's one of the three great feasts of the Jewish people. It was the most popular of the three great feasts of the people of Israel. It happened in the fall, and it was a celebration, and it was, in spiritual terms, a raucous celebration of the harvest of God's provision in their daily life. And it was a a great remembrance, particularly of how God provided for his people in the wilderness during the Exodus. 
when he called them out of slavery into Egypt and called them to the promised land, how he provided for them with the manna, with the quail, with the water from the rock, how he provided for them so that their sandals did not wear out, how he daily provided for them in that great past deliverance was an indication of how God would be faithful to deliver them in the present and the future. And so this it was this great celebration. It was a fall. It was a harvest celebration. It was a celebration of God's goodness, a celebration of thankfulness. It was like our Thanksgiving, but on steroids. It was like for all week long, they're celebrating God's goodness and his provision. And it was called the Feast of Booths because one of the distinguishing characteristics of that feast is that to commemorate that time in the wilderness, they would come to Jerusalem Tens upon tens of thousands would come and descend upon Jerusalem and they would camp out all week. They would build literally little booths or little tents or little huts out of branches and greenery and they would live in them all week long. Now that may sound kind of unpleasant, but really when I think of it, actually more recently, one of the images that comes to mind last year, last summer, the end of August was the first time that my wife and I had a chance to go see the Grange Fair. If you've ever been over there to the Grange Fairgrounds during the fair week, um, you know that they have this wonderful tent city where everybody sets up these kind of matching tents and they all live really on top of each other. And, you know, the people there that have done this for generations talk about what a great experience that is. Well, you know, I think if you add the spiritual element, if you add thankfulness to God into that scenario... You can see why this is such a great event. You have people living in such tight, wonderful community with one another, but they're doing it together to praise and glorify God. It's like one of the old uh, tent revivals, like the old camp meetings they used to talk about. It's like church camp, if you ever had that experience, or just the opportunity for a congregational retreat. It's really, as I think about that, I think about how God's people had this once a year in the Feast of the Tabernacles. I think, what a shame that we're too busy to do that anymore. Those things, those experiences are so wonderful, but that's really a side point. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. This is what people from all over Jerusalem were gathering for. And it says in verses 3 and 4, here's Jesus staying in the back country, the the backwoods of Galilee. In verses 3 and 4, we learn something about Jesus' disciples, that there were among Jesus' disciples, Jesus' physical brothers. Actually, his half-brothers, those that were born after his birth to Mary and Joseph, so much for the perpetual virginity of Mary, his half-brothers, sons of Mary and Joseph, and they are among this group of the faithful remnant of disciples that are lingering with him in Galilee. And it says that these brothers come to Jesus and they say to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. And they finished by saying, show yourself to the world. Show yourself to the world. Now that in and of itself is not a bad urging on their part. Isn't that what Jesus came to do in a sense? To show himself to the world. They're saying, here's your time. Here's your opportunity. They were probably concerned about the, the drop in Jesus' popularity recently. They were probably concerned about the dwindling number of followers due to the to the hardness of his teaching. And so they come to Jesus as younger siblings are wont to do and they try to advise him and they say, 
Here's a great opportunity. What a great platform. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Go to Jerusalem. Go to that great city. Everybody's there now. Wow them with your miracles. And your movement will be back on track in no time. In their minds, if Jesus really was claiming to be the Messiah, the Messianic King over the eternal Kingdom of God, then now would be the time to seek the limelight. To go for it. To put Himself out there. Because that's how the world's, the kingdoms of this world are built. That's how dynasties are made. That's how kings become kings. And presidents become presidents. And prime ministers become prime ministers. That's why presidential candidates don't spend a lot of time in Rhode Island and North Dakota. They spend all their time campaigning here in Pennsylvania and Texas and New York and California and Florida and places like that. Get yourself out there. Put yourself in the limelight and watch the people respond. I want us to look carefully at how Jesus responds to that strategic, yes, political advice from his brothers. Because in his response, we see how Jesus really intends to show himself to the world. We need to understand this. We need to study this. Because now, today, until Christ comes again, that's our mission. The brothers were right. We are the light of the world. He is the light of the world. He has put his light within us and now we are the light of the world. It's our mission to show Jesus to the world. Let's look to how Jesus responds to this challenge to see how we should be doing it. Now, take, it, take into account that some of the things about Jesus' mission in terms of showing himself to the world were unique to him because he was the Redeemer. He is the Redeemer. He is the Son of God. And so some aspects of how he shows himself to the world are things only he could do. But there are principles here that should guide us in our personal ministry, our family ministry, and our church's ministry as we seek to do that, to show him to the world. How does his kingdom grow? First of all, Jesus shows us here that he reveals himself to the world in his own time. Or, maybe more precisely as Jesus would have put it, in his Father's time. Verse 6, Jesus says to his brothers, My time has not yet come. You're pushing me forward because it looks like the right time to you, but that's not your time is not my time. And what this indicates, what this shows us, is that Jesus was always acutely aware that his whole life was governed by the good, sovereign plan of God the Father. Every detail of his life was according to this plan of God the Father. They were talking about showing himself to the world. He knows that showing himself to the world in the Father's plan involved dying. And he knew that every detail of that death that he would die was put in place, was planned before the creation of the world. And many of those details had been prophesied in the Old Testament by the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus realized every day when he woke up, that every detail that day was according to the plan of God the Father set in motion before the foundation of the world. That doesn't mean that Jesus was a fatalist. That he just 
went into everything that happened every day saying, hey, whatever's going to, whatever will be, will be. I, you know, I'm just a, a victim of the plan here. I'm only a robot pre-programmed to do what God has said. That's not how he lived. He lived as a faithful son, understanding that his father, God the Father, is totally sovereign in control of all the events of history, and he works everything together for his own glory and the good of God's people. And he trusted in the heart of the Father that was revealed in that good plan which was put in place before the foundation of the world. He knew the love of the Father. And he knew that every detail of his life, no matter how hard his life would become, and it would become far harder than anything you and I will ever face, no matter how hard the details of his life worked out to be, it was all initiated and planned and overseen by God the Father. And that all those details would be woven together and orchestrated by this God for his own glory, for the good of his eternal Son. And the good of God's people. And that's how he lived his life every day. Notice how Jesus points to the contrasting mindset and values of his brothers. He says, your time is always here. And I read a lot about that phrase, reflected on all that. I think I have a grasp of what he's saying to these brothers. Any time is good time for you to push forward your agenda. If you don't start your day by saying, what's God's plan? What's God doing in my life? What's God doing in the world? But if you start beginning with, what do I want to do with my life? Where do I want to go? What do I want my life to be? Then when you see an opportunity that fits your plan, any time is the right time. You don't have to consult with God because it's not God's plan that's driving your life. If God's plan is ignored and your life is governed by your own plan and agenda then any time is the right time to push forward with what you want. So I ask you, how do you plan your day? When you get up in the morning, how do you plan your day? How do you plan your future? What you're going to be doing next year, five years down the road, ten years down the road? What are you going to do with your education? What are you going to do with your career? Does it begin with the sovereign plan of God and a trust in what He's doing in the world, in you, in your family? Or does it begin with your own desires, your own heart, your own agenda? It applies to how you think about ministry. Because showing Jesus to the world is our first order of business. Whether you're talking about your own individual ministry, or your family's ministry, or the church's ministry. And so it's God's plan that has to drive that agenda. I've been thinking about this recently. We've been in some dialogue with our presbytery about church planting. We want to see churches planted that glorify Christ, that proclaim his word and the gospel, and make disciples. And it's been a great dialogue. It's been helpful. It's been constructive. It's led me to really think about the burden that I've had throughout my entire life for small towns that don't have good biblical gospel-preaching churches. I grew up in a town like that. I grew up in a church like that that didn't preach the gospel, that didn't teach the word. Ever since, I've had a burden for the small towns, and Pennsylvania is filled with small towns like that, where the gospel's not being preached, and people don't have church families to go to to get discipled in the word. And that's hard, because you interact with the people who do a lot of church planting, and there's been a very common mindset out there, that, and it's, I'm not saying it's a wrong mindset entirely, 
that you plant churches primarily in cities and suburbs where there's lots of people and lots of resources, where church growth and church planting happens quickly. And that's true and that's good, as long as we're not forgetting the small towns and the people out there that are laboring without the gospel, without the word of God. And so it's been an interesting dialogue, and I'm trying to look at it this way. It's not wrong, and I think Paul used the idea of planting churches in the big population centers, and then from there, but you know, we, he didn't stop there. The idea was that it would start there, and it would go out to the small towns around there. And I think sometimes in church planting here in the PCA and elsewhere, we're forgetting about the second stage of the plan. We're content to grow big churches in suburbs and cities, and we're forgetting about the people that are struggling without the Word of God. This is just one example of something I've been thinking about lately where we've got to look to the plan of God. What's God doing in the world? And not using, necessarily not falling into, even unthinking, into the way, world's way of thinking and the world's way of measuring what success in our mission, mission looks like. If the Lord wills is to be the first thought. Let me read to you from James We'll get to this in a moment, but this is James, one of the Lord's brothers that we're talking about in John 7. Listen to what James, interestingly, later says in chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Do you hear what James is saying? If you boast in what your plan is for the future without acknowledging the Lord's will first, you are boasting, you are being arrogant in the face of the God of all history and the God of the universe. And God will not bless that kind of arrogance. How do you plan your life? How do you plan your ministry? How do we plan our ministry? God has his time, his place, his way for everything. It needs to be our first consideration. If we live within God's plan, we don't live by the motto, seize the day or seize the opportunity. That doesn't mean we live passively, but it means that as we aggressively move forward in life and ministry and vocation, We do so submissively, always aware of this overarching plan of God. Now, I'll admit to you, we don't have the kind of divine insight into God's plan that Jesus had. He knew the details. We don't know the details. But he has given us in his word what we need to know. So the way, the practical way in which you put the plan of God, the sovereign plan of God first in your life before you set your plan, before you make your agenda, is to spend a lot of time in the Word to know His revealed will, trusting Him for the things He has not revealed, and then moving forward in faith. And as my brother uh, Kevin DeYoung says, just do something. Get out there and do something for the kingdom and trust in God to bless your efforts as you follow His principles revealed in His Word. His time, His plan needs to direct what we do. Secondly, Jesus reveals Himself to the world through His people of faith. The focus of His revelation of Himself are the people who have been given the gift of faith. Look at verse 5. 
Here, John, the the gospel writer, gives us the root of the disconnect between what Jesus is doing and what his brothers want him to do. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. You see, if you really dissect what they're saying here in chapter 7, these brothers of Jesus are not any different than the people back in chapter 6 who turned away and stopped following Jesus because remember what they wanted to do was to take Jesus to Jerusalem by force and make him king. And his brothers are saying, okay, you missed that opportunity here. Let's do it now at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the same plan, same agenda, same values, same worldview. I thought about why didn't they leave with all the other people in chapter 6. And I thought, well, it's probably because they were his brothers. And you know how it is a family. You, you get to pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives. So I'm sure that because of the family ties, the brothers stuck with Jesus a little longer than the other people did. But eventually, they might have stepped off too. We don't really know what happened between here and what we know happens later, which I'll get to in a moment. Jesus taught in chapter 6 that faith isn't just adding a set of religious principles and practices to your life. It's a radical reorientation of who you are by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is alluding to in verse 7. He says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. If you read between the lines, I think what Jesus is saying here is, you think if I just go out and make, you know, bring my teaching and do my miracles and impress these people, they're just going to come around. You don't understand spiritual reality in a fallen world. You don't understand that the world hates me in its natural state. It wants nothing to do with my teaching. It wants nothing to do with discipleship. It wants nothing to do with righteousness. In its natural state. There's nothing that Jesus could do in Jerusalem that would change their hearts unless they were first changed from within. The brothers want him to impress the people, impress the crowds, make a big splash, win them over. But Jesus would remind them of what he taught Nicodemus back in chapter 3, where he said, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's Probably one of the more familiar parts of that chapter, but let me take you back or take you to the end of that teaching in John 3, beginning in verse 19. Listen to what Jesus says. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The world is in darkness and rejects the light in that natural state. Unless God intervenes. Kind of reminds me of a, a great quote that I came out of, a great little inter, interaction between two very intelligent people I read about this week. Listen to this. Famous scientist and atheist Stephen Hawking once said, Religion is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the dark. Religion is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the dark. Famous mathematician and Christian apologist John Lennox said, Atheism is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the light. 
What a great response. Atheism is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the light. That's what Jesus is saying there in John 3. They hate the light. They hate Jesus. They hate His teachings until God intervenes. You see, I think what Jesus was saying to His brothers here is that all of the greatest teaching of the Word of God in the world and all of the most spectacular miracles in the world wasn't going to change anybody in Jerusalem unless the Holy Spirit changed that inner nature of fallen man. Rabbi Zacharias once said, I'm sure you've heard this before, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And that's what his brothers didn't understand. Jesus' mission was to die for his lost sheep, those whom the Spirit would awaken by his grace, give them the gift of faith, give them spiritual eyes, give them spiritual ears, that they might see Jesus, they might be drawn to him, that they might believe in him, that they might love him, that they might submit to him, that they might obey to him. That's what the work of the Spirit is. And apart from that work, everybody hates Jesus Christ and his kingdom. I think that's why when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, He didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't stand in the courts of the temple and announce His resurrection to everyone. He didn't go to Rome. He didn't go to Caesar to reveal Himself as resurrected. Who did He go to? He went to Mary. He went to Peter. He went to two unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus. He went to the twelve or the eleven who were in the upper room. Paul tells us later he appeared to about 500 people altogether in his resurrected state. That's because he, he was trying to tell us, that's one of the many things he was trying to tell us in that, is that his kingdom was not going to grow by mass exposure to his death and resurrection. It was going to grow because the Holy Spirit is going to call people out of that darkness into the light so that they might see Him by faith and understand Him. His movement would not grow by media. His movement would not grow by money. His movement would not grow by spectacular displays of anything. His movement would grow as born-again, grace-saved people would love Him and then go show Him to their neighbor, their brother, their mother, their father, and the kingdom would grow as disciples made disciples across the face of the planet. And that's what's been going on for the last 2,000 years. Thankfully, Jesus' brothers appear to have been enlightened eventually. It says in Acts chapter 1 that as those disciples gathered after the resurrection of Christ and the ascension, as they gathered in the upper room, that Jesus' brothers and his mother were with them. Matter of fact, we know that James, Jesus' brother, younger brother, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 15, we see him operating in that role. James is the one who wrote the book of James that we have in the Bible with that wisdom about putting God's sovereign plan first. Jude, who wrote the next to the last book of the Bible, is also, we believe, a brother of Jesus Christ. So praise God for his grace. It even reached these brothers who were so dark in their understanding in John chapter 7. It's Christ's job to make dead people live. It's our mission 
to go to those around us, neighbors, co-workers, brothers, sisters, parents, and just tell them the truth, that Jesus is risen and all that that implies. That brings me to the last way in which Jesus reveals himself according to this text. Jesus reveals himself not only in his own time and not only to his own people, but he reveals himself for his own purposes. In God's kingdom, glory doesn't come through power and fame and fortune. In verse 8, Jesus alludes to this. He says, I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now, as you read on in the text that we just read this morning, you know that he meant, I'm not going up to the feast yet. Because he did later go up. He remained in Galilee for part of that week, but late in the week he ended up going up to the Feast of Tabernacles and we'll have some interactions that he had with the people and the Jewish leadership coming up in the the next couple of chapters. It says he went up privately to Jerusalem. I think when I used to read that, I used to think of him you know, sneaking through the countryside and the back roads and coming in with a disguise. But I don't think that's really what it means. I think it means typically people went up to the Feast of Tabernacles with crowds and a big caravan. And if leaders came in and respected teachers came in, they committed a lot of fanfare. He didn't go that way. He waited till everybody had gone, everybody's already there, and then he came up privately with probably just his closest disciples. Not, without, not with the big fanfare and the big announcement of his arrival. But that word time, what interests me in verse 6 and verse 8, it says that his time had not fully come. And John uses a word there that doesn't mean time in the way that we typically talk about time in terms of looking at your watch. He uses a different Greek word there that means more like opportune moment. His opportune moment had not arrived. And you know what an opportune moment is. It's, you know, when somebody says, I love when a plan comes together. That's the opportune moment. When God's plan all comes together, it's the opportune moment. And Jesus said, that moment has not yet arrived. And I live in submission to the will and the plan of God. The Feast of Tabernacles was not the time for Jesus to die and to shed his blood for our sins. Much more appropriate to wait six months, which he did, in God's sovereign plan. Six months later, the Feast of Passover. The celebration of the Passover lamb that was spread above the doorways and the sides of the doorways of the people of Israel so that the angel of death would pass over them and not bring death to their household so that they could be delivered from bondage and slavery. What a great opportune moment for the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world to go to the cross to die for the sins of his people. That's God's opportune moment. The cross was the focal point of this eternal plan of God that was set in motion before the foundation of the world. The cross. That place of the greatest earthly shame. The greatest symbol of of earthly rejection, of earthly condemnation. That's the focal point of the sovereign plan of God. The world can't understand that. That's the path to glory for Jesus Christ. was through the cross, through the grave, to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. 
And his mission would have been a total failure if he had given in to the temptations of Satan in the wilderness to take a different path, the path of man, the path of earthly kingdoms to a position of fame and power and glory. The path to glory was through the cross. If Jesus' blood wasn't shed in our place, we would remain under our sins, the penalty of our sins for all eternity, and he would have no people to lead in his eternal kingdom. I was thinking about this this week, and a passage came to mind. Remember when in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane in Matthew 26, Peter came to the side of Jesus and tried to dissuade him from going to the cross because Peter still didn't understand. He tried to dissuade him and lead him off of the path to glory. You remember what Jesus said to him? And this is such a great bookend to what Jesus is trying to teach his brothers here in chapter 7. Jesus says to Peter, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Don't you think that I could just snap my finger and the whole planet would be decimated by 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? How then will the plan of God put in motion before the foundation of the world ever be completed? How will God's people ever be saved if I don't go to the cross? I take you back to President Roosevelt's wheelchair. The wheelchair in his presidency was seen as a shameful symbol of weakness, something to be hidden so that he might lead. But in Christ's kingdom, for Christ's king, the cross becomes the symbol of power and victory for all eternity. The world will mock and hate that message. The world untouched by the Spirit, the world living in the darkness of sin and selfishness and self-centeredness and rebellion will hate that message. And that's only going to increase in our days, I fear. But we must say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Back in the 1980s, I remember I was just newly into ministry and there was a lot of anxiety in the broader church about increasing persecution and and rejection of the church. And I remember that among the prominent evangelical leaders in the country, there were some who proposed the idea of establishing an anti-defamation league for Christians, similar or patterned after the anti-defamation league that had been very successful for a long time in protecting the rights of Jewish people. And they were trying to float this with denominations and Christian leaders around the country. Let's have a Christian anti-defamation league to protect our rights as a minority in this increasingly hostile culture. And I, something felt unright about that to me. It just felt wrong. I, I, didn't, I didn't like the feel of that. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it as a, as a relatively new Christian, a new leader in the church. What's wrong with that? love the fact that Charles Colson wrote a column that nailed it. And in that column, Charles Colson said something like, and I, I couldn't find it. You can find anything online, but I couldn't find this column. It's been so long ago. He said something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing what he said, is basically, 
We are the church of Jesus Christ. We represent the visible kingdom of God. We are not, I repeat, not a special interest group or a minority subculture in the American culture. We are the kingdom of God. We represent Jesus Christ who is the King of kings. Let's speak and act accordingly. Let the response of the world be damned. Let's speak as representatives of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Boldly proclaiming the gospel. This passage ends with verse 12 saying that there was in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles much muttering about him among the people. Things haven't changed, have they? There's still much muttering about him out there in our culture. There are still many who say, like they did in Jerusalem, he was a good man. I liked his teaching about helping the poor. I liked his miracles where he fed people and where he healed their illnesses. He was a good man. Good good example for us to follow. There are also many who will say, probably many, many more, who will say he has led the people astray doesn't matter. We know the important details about the sovereign plan of God which started before the foundation of the world, which focused upon the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and will come to fulfillment when he returns again. And on that day, he will show himself to everyone. There is coming a day when Jesus will show himself with an awesome fanfare and with an overwhelming display of force, with Many dozens of legions of angels and with a church triumphant from all ages, he will appear and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Until that day, our mission goes on. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are here to show Jesus to the world. Proclaim his word boldly. Love as he loved us. And watch the Spirit work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our calling. We don't deserve to be here. Apart from your grace, we would be as much in the darkness of sin and death and destruction as those who do not believe around us. We do not know why you have called us by your grace. We do not know why you have given us the gift of your Spirit and the gift of faith. We are so thankful. And we are so humble. Father, use us. Make us an effective, a bright and shining light that those around us who are being called by your Spirit might see the glory of Christ and bow a knee today, seeing that today is the day of salvation, that they might be spared from your eternal wrath and delivered into your eternal kingdom of blessing. Use us as a part of your plan to reach those who are lost. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.